Good evening. Well, the pandemic has been used to encourage us all to work from home, a new way of working, home working, flexible working, and we're all going to be just as productive as we were when we went to the office and worked in teams. I've always thought the whole thing is a complete load of nonsense in the vast majority of cases, uh, but it's something that's been embraced by the civil service. Yes, absolutely. The last estimate is that only 20% of civil servants are back in their London offices. And indeed, a survey conducted a few months ago into the civil service union discovered that seven out of 10 civil service officials want their post-pandemic working to include three days a week from home and just twice in the office. Well, I think a symptom of this has been exposed by Raphael Marshall, the whistleblower, who spoke to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and he talked about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, saying that at times he was the sole person in the office dealing with the Afghan inbox. And these are people, and I'm not sure, you know, that every single person that said they wanted to come to the UK was genuine, but there were many thousands of people during those 20 years that did work for the British forces whose lives were directly under threat by the takeover of Kabul by the, Tal by the Taliban. Worse still with this culture, Sir Philip Barton, the boss. And here's a picture of him, a classic sort of chinless wonder who's had a wonderful career in the civil service. He, of course, has already got his knighthood, his guaranteed pension. Think about this. He was the senior civil servant there in the Foreign Office. Kabul fell on the 15th of August, with all of the ensuing chaos. And guess when he came back to work? When he came back to work on the 26th of August. Jolly well done, Sir Philip. Absolutely marvellous. No, I think the whole thing is a complete and utter disgrace. There are other questions too. Pen Farthing, who managed to evacuate 150 dogs. Uh, and it said by the whistleblower that this was a priority for Boris Johnson. Well, look. You know, we all love dogs, uh, but I don't think that was specifically one of our war aims. Even worse than that, in the Foreign Office in Kabul, uh, details of Afghanis, their addresses, uh, were left in the British Embassy and were not destroyed. So the question tonight I want to debate with you is, should the civil service get back to the office? I'd love your views on this. Maybe I've got this wrong. Maybe homeworking is the future. Tell me what you think, please. GBviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet at gbnews. Now, all of this was put to the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, this morning, who responded thus. Did not put uh, the welfare of animals above uh, individuals, uh, and I think you can see that in the facts of 15,000 people evacuated in just two weeks, as I said, Biggest uh, effort operation in living memory, uh, and only the US got more out. Look, I think it's an incredibly difficult situation. Uh, we would have wanted a longer time window uh, in order to uh, get out um, everyone who was eligible. But even after the evacuation, I saw this for myself, uh, we were working to get uh, flights out of 
uh, Kabul with Qatar. We were working with uh, regional partners to make sure that we could take British nationals and those that we had said that we would take. We did everything we could. And again, I say, come back to the point, 15,000 people evacuated in two weeks. Uh, it never been done before, certainly not in my living memory, and uh, only the United States got more people out. I think, uh, I think that was actually a record that those involved, particularly those working on the ground, should be proud of. We always said that we were up against this timeline, uh, that a combination of the US uh, deadline uh, and the Taliban's approach to it, that we were working to an expedited um, deadline. And, uh, and look, that put pressure uh, on the evacuation plan. But we've been planning for this uh, since well before, since January. Um, uh, and indeed, again, in April, we changed the travel advice. Uh, the, the, those schemes like the Arab scheme were being set up. Uh, but of course, if we'd have had extra time, we would have um, uh, prolonged that period. So there's the official response, the establishment closing ranks, saying everything's absolutely fine. We managed to get 15,000 people out the whistleblower. Well, Raphael was saying that basically thousands of emails weren't even read. Now, as I said earlier, I'm sure anyone that was anyone wanted to get out of Kabul, and many of those may not have been genuine. But did we actually get the right 15,000 people out? And what is the culture there within the Foreign Office? We're joining me is somebody with real experience of dealing with the Foreign Office and of Afghanistan. It's Colonel Richard Kemp, retired army officer who was commander of some British forces in Afghanistan way back in 2003. Colonel Kemp, good evening. Good evening. A long time ago. It was a long time ago. Um, but at the end of that 20 years, and of course, you know, you went there uh, to get rid of the Taliban. At the end of the 20 years, you know, Joe Biden pulls the plug. And I, by the way, Far more blame lies with him for what happened than it does with the Foreign Office. I do want to make that clear. Um, but what did you make of what the whistleblower had to say about the culture, the work from home culture, and the fact that the head of the operation, the head of the office, decided not to come back from his holiday for until 11 days after Kabul had fallen? Well, I'm afraid to say that that culture rings very, very true with me. I worked in the Cabinet Office for many years, and I worked with all the Whitehall government departments, including the Foreign Office. When we had crises to deal with, and we had several crises during my tenure, not on this scale, but nevertheless significant crises, it was always very difficult to get Whitehall departments, including the Foreign Office, to step up to the mark. Yes, there were some very, very effective people there, very clever people, very hard-working people, some who work right around the clock. But the culture was not to work 24-7 and keep working till the job's done. It was to work, to, to have your holiday, to finish your scheduled hours, and to, you know, not, not to kind of take the, the military boss, which is just do it till the job's finished. And I'm afraid that was, it was very hard to, to whip government officials working in Whitehall into line and try and get them to, to understand the need to go onto a war footing when actually you've got a wartime situation. So it doesn't surprise me that this is the case still in the Foreign Office today. And as to working from home, I mean, you can't run a crisis in any circumstances working from home. You've got to be in the same place, either in the same room or the same complex. You cannot do it. Just the, the idea of working from home, running a major crisis like this is just laughable if it wasn't so tragic. and. As to the leadership of the Foreign Office, the minute this began to evolve, the, the um, permanent secretary of the Foreign Office should have been straight back at work, back behind his desk. How can he expect people to put all the effort into 
go the extra mile that is demanded by this situation if he's lying on a beach somewhere. Well, I must say, you know, his defence that I was... I kept in touch with the office wasn't very convincing to me either. I've certainly had to cancel uh, holidays to come back for business reasons, political reasons. I'm astonished uh, that he decided that 11 days uh, was actually OK. And backing up your point about, you know, a war room situation and you work until the job is done. In fact, they worked eight hour revolving shifts during that period, whether at home or in the office, because they didn't want staff to burn out. Well, there you are. Other question for you, uh, Richard Kemp. Um, I don't know whether, I mean, are you a dog owner? I'm not a dog owner, no, and I certainly don't think that any priority should have been given to dogs over human beings in Afghanistan. I don't care what the Prime Minister or his wife may have thought or what the British public thought, that the, 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 the procedures and the, the, the conditions that were laid down by the Foreign Office for evacuating did not include dogs and should not have included dogs. No, I mean, look, you know, it was a private plane that took the dogs out, but the argument is that army resources were diverted in helping shelter get them uh, to the aeroplane. So there is a real question around that. And Richard Kemp, finally, you know, the last figures I've got are that 20% of the civil service are back at their desks in London and that the civil service union themselves, well, 7 out of 10 of their senior people think that here on forever, they should only have to come to the London office two days a week. Do we need a very major change of culture, perhaps not just in the Foreign Office, but perhaps that goes through the Ministry of Defence, again, who you've got experience with? Does someone need to shake this whole thing up? Somebody does need to shake it up. It's a, it's a very, very deeply ingrained culture. And I think things like this, we've heard from the whistleblower, Mr Marshall, the the emphasis on work-life balance. We don't want emphasis on work-life balance. We want emphasis on getting the job done. And if that needs working, uh, you know, if necessary, for 12 hours a day or 15 hours a day, whatever it is, then they should do that. The army was called in to help the Foreign Office because they know soldiers will work the, the hours they're required to work. It does need shaking up. The, the, we, we, don't want it, we don't want people working from home. We don't want virtue signaling about work-life balance. We need people behind their desk doing their job. And the only place that most civil servants can actually do their job, in my view, and I've had a lot of experience of working with civil servants, is behind their desks and getting out sometimes on the ground to see how things are going on the ground as well. Well, Colonel Kemp, thank you for joining us this evening and giving us your very clear opinion. Well, to you at home, as I say, it could well be that Colonel Kemp and I are just old-fashioned, completely out of touch, but I think the argument that he made there is a compelling one. In a crisis, you need people working together in a high-pressure situation, able to bounce ideas off each other. And I'm absolutely convinced that is how this should have been handled. I'm utterly astonished at the laxitude of much of what went on. Uh, and frankly, weak apologies uh, coming afterwards simply aren't good enough. And I never thought I'd say this, but... I've always found Dominic Cummings to be a very difficult individual. But one thing he was absolutely right about was the blob, as he described it, the Westminster set uh, that run so much of our policy, so much of our politics. And there's no doubt that Cummings really did want a major shake-up of the civil service. And I worry, with him gone from Downing Street, I worry where that impetus may come from, if 
at all. Now, the weather. The Brits, of course, always like talking about the weather. Storm Arwen is now 11 days ago, and there are still many hundreds of homes up in the northeast of England without electricity. But today, well, today, Northern Ireland, uh, North Wales, uh, the west of Scotland have been hit by Storm Barra, and there is a, a weather map showing you uh, that the, uh, the isobars there are really very, very tight. Indeed, I did listen to the shipping forecast um, at 20 past five this morning, I think it was, um, and I heard hurricane-force winds predicted uh, for parts of the sea. So I knew this was going to be a big one, and perhaps even a very dangerous one. So joining me, is Mark White, GB News's home and security editor, who, at the drop of a hat, heads off to cover any crisis that's going on. Mark, good evening. Nigel, good evening. I suppose there will be quite a few viewers who are uh, scratching their heads, saying, a winter storm in the middle of winter, go figure, why on earth are they covering that? But I think it's important, actually, to come up and cover these storms because we often get complaints I think justifiably from many people in the north of England in Scotland and let's face it other parts of the country outside of London and the southeast who say that you're only ever as the media interested in doing these storms when it affects the southeast and the slightest flurry and everything grounds, uh, grinds to a halt well here of course they just as best they can get on with it and that's what they did today as Storm Barra barreled in uh, first to the west coast of Ireland uh, then to the UK uh, and it's still about and we're expecting it to still be uh, a point of concern over at least the next 12 perhaps 24 hours as it continues to circulate round. Now it was bad here on the main A7 which is a trunk road between Carlisle and Edinburgh that runs right through the Scottish borders. It was bad in some other areas, high-lying routes mainly. Uh, just a couple of clips to play you actually just to show you what it was like a little earlier today uh, of me here on the A7 and my colleague David Donaldson up in the Southern Highlands. We're in the heart of the Scottish borders on the A7 trunk route between Carlisle and Edinburgh and Storm Barra has arrived. It's snowing pretty heavily now and the added hazard are the winds which are really whipping up now and likely to cause significant drifting on the higher routes. Well, as you can see here at Aviemore, Storm Barra has really, really taken a hold because uh, heavy, heavy snow in the area. Number of cars here parked behind me. Doesn't look like they're going to be going anywhere soon at all. You can also see a bus as well in the background and it's had real trouble uh, actually trying to get out of the snow. So it's really starting to take a grip here. We're expecting anywhere between two to four inches of snow. I suggest we've certainly had some of that already and it's not going to snow. The forecast says it's not going to snow. For, it's going to continue to snow for some time, so that's going to go right through the night. So, yeah, the snow gates up at the Cairngorm Centre, further up the road, they've been closed, so that's been closed off completely. 
a little wonder when you see the conditions here because it really is getting quite treacherous. Uh, we made our way up here a short time ago uh, and the, the snow was getting worse and worse. So we'll be certainly be taking an about turn and, and heading back down the hill uh, and back to sort of better conditions. But it's the same in Aviemore, it's the same further down. Dalwinnie's quite bad as well. And generally across Scotland, we're expecting there's obviously a number of warnings in place and we're expecting gusts of 7 to 80 miles an hour. Uh, and obviously, as I said, more and more snow in some areas. 17 centimetres of snow forecast, so certainly Storm Barra very much taking a hold. And reports uh, that I got, Mark, that in the Republic of Ireland and across into Northern Ireland, something like 50,000 houses had lost electricity. Yeah, and I'll bet that the people, the good people of the Irish Republic will not be going 11 days without their homes being reconnected. Uh, whatever Northern Power Grid say about the exceptional circumstances of Storm Arwen, I cannot believe for the life of me that if this had been an event that was taking place in the southeast of England, that people would still be without power some 11 days on. Uh, we were told yesterday by the politicians that the 1,300 remaining households, and that's households, remember, with sometimes multiple people in one household, the 1,300 remaining households would have their power restored today. Well, the end of today is here pretty much, and we still have 500 homes still without power going into a 12th day. Mark, thank you very much. Great reporting. And I think the point Mark makes there, that if this was in the southeast of England, this would have been dealt with very much more quickly and that actually mainstream media are guilty, perhaps not always, of covering things that happen outside of London and the southeast in the way in which they should. Let's see what happens in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland and hope they get put back online more quickly than those poor people in the northeast. Just occasionally, a politician comes along who shifts the centre of gravity of political debate in a nation. I have a feeling that's happening in France right now with Eric Zemmour. In a moment, we'll go to Paris to discuss this with somebody that knows him well. Some audience reactions. Steve, our GB News, says, Nigel, let them have five days a week at home. Sack the lot. Do we really need them? Well, I guess someone's got to run <laughs> the structure of the country. Ian asks, what a cushy job that civil servants have. A job for life, a gold-plated pension and working from home. It's a disgrace. George on GB News says, if only 20% of civil servants have returned to work, perhaps we only need 20% of the current number. Well, you may be right. I'm sure Dominic Cummings would have had a view on that. Muriel says, let's just fire all the civil servants. <laughs> and somebody on Twitter says, I've worked from home for over three years as a telecoms network engineer and actually work harder because I didn't want to lose the privilege. I'm not a civil servant. I don't doubt... But there are some people, perhaps computer programmers, who may find working from home there are fewer distractions than being in the office. For the vast majority of us, I think working from home leads to constant dis distractions and actually our productivity going down. Plus, the work from home culture is so unfair on young people embarking on careers who are ambitious and want to get on because they learn by being with older, experienced people. I find the best ideas come when you're with people bouncing ideas off them. And that could be 
in the office. It could be in the pub on Thursday night after work. I think being with other people leads to more productivity and fresh thinking. That is my view. I haven't shifted from it, though I accept that for some, working from home works. Now, Monsieur Zemmour is changing French politics in a remarkable way. The country is moving in its language to the right and doing so pretty significantly. Zemmour, never involved before in politics, and here he is at a big rally at the weekend shortly after he announced that he was throwing his hat in the ring to run as French president. Just how influential is he? Just how big a difference is he making? Well, joining me is Peter Allen, journalist based in Brussels, in Paris, I'm sorry, old friend of mine. Uh, and you've recently interviewed Zamor, but you've known him for a bit, I believe. I have, Nigel. He's uh, effectively a Paris hack. He's somebody who's been um, on the journalistic scene in Paris for many, many years not just uh, as a broadcaster, but also as a print journalist. That's how he started out. Very much a, a dissenting, angry, dare I say, bitter print journalist. I mean these in, in a complimentary way, actually, not in a kind of, um, oh, he's, he, he's, a, he's a piece of work and he's all, always being unpleasant to people. He is somebody who's always trying to pick out the negative in what he sees as a corrupt uh, political establishment in Paris, a political establishment that doesn't really deliver to the people of France. And he makes uh, those views uh, known often very eloquently. Uh, the problem with him, uh, many would argue, is his abject extremism in one particular area, Nigel, and that would be uh, immigration and his views towards uh, millions of French citizens who he rather objects to their presence in France for cultural, for religious, for all kinds of reasons. And this is something that has made him very, very unpopular with other large segments uh, of French society. But uh, again, Nigel, to sum him up, he's, he's a hack journalist who has been taking pot shots at the French political establishment for many, many years. And now he's pushing himself forward as somebody who can be the head of state, uh, the president of the French Republic, a hugely powerful position. You don't necessarily need a, a, an established party behind you, as uh, Emmanuel Macron um, displayed in 2017. But I can tell you that Eric Zemmour has just announced that he is founding a new party, and the name is Reconquest. What a, what a warlike um, name that is wow. for, for a party, Nigel. Yes, it is. I suppose he would argue that he's not complaining about immigration, but integration. Uh, but we'll have to find out more on that as time goes on. Uh, and yet, it seems to me, observing from here, listening to the rhetoric, even of Monsieur Barnier, who attempted to get the nomination uh, for his party but failed, it seems he's shifting the whole debate in France very much in his direction when it comes to immigration, when it comes to integration. I mean, France is moving to the right because of this man, isn't it? We, we could argue that. Uh, Marine Le Pen might disagree. The uh, Rassemblement National came second in the last uh, presidential election in 2017. She always gets a very large uh, segment of the vote. She would argue that uh, this is her, her chance now coming up. At the moment, I have to say, Nigel, she's uh, slightly ahead of him in the polls. 
And of course, they're, they're both very angry with each other because they think that uh, they will split the, uh, the far right vote, if I'm allowed to use those, that, that expression. Um, he thinks uh, and she thinks that the, the two of them there isn't a place for both of them in this presidential election. And the winners won't necessarily be Macron, but the Gaulist Conservatives, who, you're completely right there, Nigel, are moving massively to the right as well. Yeah. Emmanuel Macron himself even has brought in a, a lot of policies that a lot of his more liberal supporters uh, wouldn't uh, support. Um, and uh, that is something that is, is, is absolutely right. France uh, has always been, there's always been a relatively large uh, right-wing uh, contingent, as you know, but certainly uh, you would, I would say that someone like Eric Zemmour is certainly putting, pushing the debate further and further to the right. Well, I remember when a guy called Donald Trump, who was a, a real estate guy from New York, uh, who had a, a, a TV show in America, uh, threw his hat into the ring and made some incredibly bold statements on issues. And everybody said, well, this will never get anywhere. And hey, he came through and won. So I'm not saying Zamor will, uh, but I do think, just finally, France is not a very happy place, is it? Its citizens don't feel very happy. Its cities feel very divided. Uh, the economy is now starting to bite. If ever there was a moment for a shock in modern times, it is now, isn't it? Potentially. I mean, Saturdays now, for example, is almost an institutionalised riot day. Paris has always been a protest city. There have always been riots in Paris, as we all know. But there is a feeling that uh, this organised dissent this idea that thousands, millions uh, <laughs> on certain weekends can come out on the street in cities all over France and protest, often very violently, against um, the administration, Emmanuel Macron's administration. Yes, there, are, there is division. There are people who are very upset. Uh, the economy is not doing that badly. Unemployment is falling, falling, falling. Uh, there are certain things that uh, the government is doing right. But you're right, Nigel, it, 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 there's, there's unhappiness. Uh, there are problems, in, certainly institutionalised uh, problems with the French system. And that is what somebody like Eric Zemmour hopes uh, he can do something yeah. about if he were uh, absolutely this incredible surprise. Well, Peter, thank you for joining us. And we're going to talk to you again as the next few months go by. Thank you very much. Indeed. Now, Pope Francis, well, he's compared the EU to a Nazi dictatorship for trying to impose woke rules and language by banning the use of the word Christmas. Yes, last week, the European Union wanted to cancel Christmas after telling staff to avoid the festive word in, fav in favour of holiday period because it could be offensive to non-Christians. The Pope not happy with this at all. And he's warned the bloc not to take the path of ideological colonialization as he returned from Greece after a four-day trip. This Pope has form, I can tell you. He came to visit the European Parliament in 2014 when I was one of the seven group leaders. And we all stood in the entrance to the European Parliament with the flags. Now, this is the official photograph. And it shows the Pope ignoring me completely. The fact is, the Pope did speak to me, but the official photographs decided that I would be a non-person uh, for the purposes of this event. Luckily, a friend in the gallery did actually take some other pictures which show us uh, saying hello and chatting. They were furious with him because Francis spent longer 
talking to me than he did to any of the other group leaders. And that was an indication, I think, of the speech that was to come. I was astonished that he really did criticise the excess spending within the EU institutions and even hinted that the travelling circus from Brussels to Strasbourg and back every month was wrong. So I think the guy's got Eurosceptic form um, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see what he had to say. Now, you thought your boss was bad. Wait till you hear about this next man. Yep, the chief executive of a US-based digital mortgage lending company fired 900 people simultaneously on a Zoom call ahead of the holiday season. Here's a clip of him doing it. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group Ooh, that is being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. Kidding me? What does this mean for what's next? You're going to get an email from HR, askhr at better.com, to your personal email address. Details of your severance and your benefits. For all U.S. employees, we're providing four weeks of severance. Well, what a heartless... But No, we're before the watershed. Right, but there you are. As I say, he looks like the worst boss in the world. In a moment, the GB News pub is opening and the black farmer, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, will be sitting here talking to me. As advertised by Jacob Rees-Mogg in the House of Commons yesterday, it is Talking Pints. And today I'm joined by Wilfred Emmanuel-Jones. Welcome to the GB News pub. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's nice great to, your to see you. I just love your story. It's oh, just, thank you. I love your story. I wonder how it all happened. You know, the boy that's born in Jamaica and comes to the UK and lives in one of the big conurbations of Birmingham... And yet, and all, lots of things you've done in between, lots of very interesting things you've done in between, and we'll come back to that, very nearly a Member of Parliament, and it was a great shame you weren't, actually. Um, how does somebody from that background suddenly become the rural Englishman, the farmer, the Morris dancer, the... I mean, what happened here? It's, it's a fascinating story. Well, actually, one of the great advantages of being brought up in society's dustbin heap is that there's nowhere else to go but up. Right. And as you said, look, I am I'm of the Windrush generation, so mm. you know the story that, um, you know, people like my parents came over in the 50s, I was left behind, and then when they earned enough money, I then followed, and I was brought up in Small Heath in Birmingham. And even to this day, I have absolutely no fondness at all for the place. It was a pits. Was it? And, yeah, and I'm from a family of 11, so there's 11 of us. Imagine this now, Nigel, 11 of us brought up in a two-up, to Danto's house. There are three of us to a bed. We were really, really poor. You know, I remember my mother having to try and feed 11 of us with one chicken. And it's not one of these chickens you now get at the supermarkets, um, which is nice and tender. It's one of these old hens that no one wanted. And so she had to cook it for days. I should just laugh. To... I should laugh. But, you know, <laughs> I've now to this day got a fetish with my chicken bones because trying to get every bit of nutrition out of it. <laughs> But because we were so poor, my father had an allotment, and as the oldest boy, it was my responsibility to look after this allotment. And this is where my story started, because 
This allotment really became my oasis away from the misery that I was surrounded in. And I can remember at the age of 11 that I made myself a promise that one day I would like to own my own farm. Now, it took me about 40 years to, to, to achieve that. <laughs> but one of the things I like to say to people, it's very, 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 very important to dream early and to dream big. Now, you've been to the States and the, the, the Americans really understand this idea that you could dream to be much bigger. Sky's the, the limit. Yeah. Sky's the limit. Yeah. So if there's one criticism I have to have about us being British is mm. that we tend to be quite cynical about people who think that they could really rise above their station. But if you don't put it out there, if you don't dream it, it will never, ever happen. And every single thing about everything I've achieved in life, somebody has gone out of their way to help me make it happen. So if you're not prepared to put it out there, you will not meet the guardian angels who will come along to help you achieve those goals. So that, it may be a very simple thing to say. No, look, but it's a very, very, very important I mean, this thing. is the most pro-allotment argument I've ever heard in my life. Very much so. But I think actually allotments have been very popular during lockdown. And I think people have been growing things and people have been enjoying the big outdoors. Well, there's nothing better than knowing that you are responsible for making something happen. Hmm. That you see it starting off as a little seed and you nurture it, you care for it and then actually you produce something that is edible. That is really, really fascinating. One of the things I, I, I read about um, during COVID, a lot of people started buying plants, house plants, and they were starting mm. to start looking after these plants, nurturing. It is wonderful to be able to sort of nurture stuff because it takes you yeah. outside of yourself, really, and yeah. it helps you to connect with, there's this bigger thing than yourself. So I, I would advocate that. Yeah, all well, I'm time. harvesting my carrots at the moment. Are you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't grow a lot. Mm -hmm. It's fairly modest, but, you know, two radishes and spring onions and a few tomatoes and, 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 and the carrots are very, looking very good. And, and, and I, you know, it doesn't take much time and I enjoy doing it. Mm -hmm. But interesting, I mean, you know, from that background, you know, parachute regiment, didn't kind of work out that well. But well, now, let's be honest, I got kicked out of the Punisher. I mean, I, you know, I was a real pain in the ass. I mean, you, you've got to try and picture this. I'm a 16-year-old I'm boy, left school without any qualifications. One of the disadvantages that I had at that time was that I'm dyslexic. Which wouldn't have been recognised. Would not have been recognised. So it's something I'm pretty passionate about now because I think there's a lot of people whose lives are wasted where yeah. they could be doing a lot more if people understood um, dyslexia. Mm. So, you know, a 16-year-old black mouthy guy going into something like the parachute regiment one or two things are going to happen you either do as you're told or you're going to get your head kicked in and get kicked out <laughs> i got my head kicked in i got kicked out yeah i mean television and 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 but i well, television was quite interesting. and you do well with television we see what was interesting about television and again this is all about having the courage to have the audacity to dream big because at the time there were some fantastic programs on the bbc and I decided, actually, I would like to go and work in television. So you can imagine all of my family and friends thought I was nuts. As you probably know, that television then and today is full of the Oxbridge types, especially... Oh, big, the, the, big especially the, the traditional... The BBC. <laughs> yeah. And exactly, so yeah. it was the BBC uh, yeah. that I wanted to go. You know, so a yeah. black guy from my background, you know, how on earth did that happen? Now, you know, as you could imagine, I tried to write to people, ring people, no one took my calls. And at the time, in fact, because I was living in Birmingham, um, BBC Pebble Mill, mm. I went to the security guards and said, because they used to have these manual barriers that used to let the big, important people like you in and out of the building. Get out. And I said, could I help doing that? Because the security guards said yes, because they didn't want to get out of their nice, comfortable sheds. So I did that for months and months and months. 
I then met the cleaners, and I went to clean the offices. And I remember this guy... His name Entryism, was, this is called. This is pardon? Entryism. Entryism. <laughs> but the big break was a guy, and his name was Jock Gallagher, who was a big senior executive at the BBC at the time. And I said, look, you know, I really want to get a job in television. And he says, look, you know, you ain't the sort of person we employ in television because you don't have the education. You've got a bit of an attitude problem. But he said, I'll, I don't know, he said, if he'd live to regret this, but I'll give you a job as a runner for three months and then to see what happened. Mm. Now, that man having the courage to give me that break yeah. then started up a long career in television. And not enough of that happens. And the thing I hate more than anything is bloody human resources. Sorry, can you swear? No, 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 not no, really. No, but that's like, what, one strike. One, one strike. Right. <laughs> human resources, because what they do is that they filter, they would filter out. They, like, they dehumanise. They, they filter out all yeah. the stuff unless you fit into a very narrow um, framework. And you must have a degree. And, yeah, no, no. Just, I, and, yeah, I, so I, so I, many people I, are wasted I, who have got I, talents because no. our system just doesn't, uh, um, it's not geared to, all, to see the differences they, that they have. So that's how my career no. in TV started, really people going out of the way. To give you first came onto my radar, I, I don't know what it would have been, 2005, 6, 7, this very flamboyant black bloke riding a horse in the English countryside who'd become a farmer, was supportive of country sports, and wanted to become a Conservative Member of Parliament. I thought, what is going on here? Um, but you were very flamboyant. But it's all about breaking the stereotype. Because I'll tell you what my philosophy is, Nigel. You know, my parents have earned the right... Um, because what happens with a lot of the black communities is that they feel as though that only the, the cities or the towns is the place where they could be. And I think it's part of our responsibility to branch out. If you want to work and live in rural Britain, you feel that's part of your soul, yeah. you have the right to do that. The great irony is this. A lot of people from um, my back, where my parents came from are from rural backgrounds. You know, they left rural backgrounds and ended up in the cities. But actually, they yeah. probably preferred to be in rural environments. But all the prejudice about what they expect they will find if they go to rural Britain. I can remember when I told people I was going to buy my farm down in Devon, mm. people were saying to me, Shit, you know, do, do they lynch black people down there? You know, this is the idea. And yet, what did you find when you got there? Well, what, what, there's two things that I found. I mean, the, the urbanites thought I was crazy. The rural people just thought it was nuts because anybody in rural Britain wanted to get out of rural Britain and go up to a big up, up country, as they yeah. call it, go, go up country. And that they just couldn't figure it out, you know. I'll give you, this is a really, really fascinating story. I can remember when I put up my first polytunnel, somebody called out the police because they thought it was a cover for me growing ganja. <laughs> so when, that, you, when you're trying that to... That is change, prejudice. I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, when you are trying to break stereotypes, when you're a pathfinder, it's confusing for people because yeah. they, it doesn't sort of fit what people imagine what a black person should be. You know, the greatest privileges in life <coughs> is to be authentically who you want to be Quite. rather than feeling that you have to belong or behave in a certain so way. So they, they called you the black farmer down in Denver. Exactly. So, you know, which, which, I, but, I, but that wasn't meant as an insult, was it? No, no, it wasn't. I mean, I think the thing, everybody tries to find a way of... Um, Easily sort of communicating, I am black, it, you know, I'm the only one there. It's an obvious thing to yeah. do. And what I've always done with my life is that how do you use your difference as an advantage? So you embraced it? 
Well, I just thought that is a brilliant way, actually, to yeah. create a brand. Yeah. Because, and, and it was at the time, you know, in this society we live in, everybody's really a bit nervous about political correctness. What is the right thing to say? What you can and you can't say? So I knew that when I decided to call the brand The Black Farmer, a lot of people, especially from the light, from the left, mm. would be thinking, whoa, you know, is that politically correct, you know? I would say, well, what do you want me to call myself? The Afro-Caribbean farmer? It doesn't have the same... <laughs> but it's worked for you beautifully, hasn't it? Well, it is, because actually it says what it is on the tin. Yeah. And also, what it also points out is that there isn't black farmers uh, in this country. And the question is, well, why aren't they? Considering a lot of them did come from rural backgrounds. And the truth of it is this, is that most private farms, the guys haven't had to go out and actually buy it. It's been handed down through the generations and or you would be able to rent or lease land from these big landowners. So whether you're black or whether you're from uh, any, uh, any environment where you're an outsider, it's always it's very difficult to break very, it. Very, yeah. very I difficult. think that's right. Yeah. I think, I think so that's it's right. about how do we create yeah. a system where we get new no, blood, no, no. because I think our no, industry right. desperately needs you're new right. blood. I, I was very sorry, you, know, you, you came within a couple of thousand votes of being an MP. God, yeah. That was close, and you'd have made a real impact in Parliament. But it didn't happen. No. But, you, you know, your life's been a great success. And then leukaemia strikes. Yes. I mean, and there's one... There's, there's, I mean, I know it may be an odd thing to say, but the greatest gift that I had was getting that cancer. And if you look at my face at the moment, you'll see that... Um, I've got something called graft versus host disease, which is something that, because I had the transplant, this is what sort of happens. So every day I look in the mirror, I know I'm here because of timing, because of science. Yeah. I should not have been here. So therefore, your perspective on life is totally different. So it's how do you live your authentic truth rather than worrying about what people may think of you? And if there's one thing I could say to people is that do not allow yourself to get into a position where you nearly die before you start living your, your authentic truth. On that deep philosophical note, yeah. I'm going to say, Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, thank it's you for joining me already. on Talking Pies. We could have talked for hours, but he was great, wasn't he? He really was. Thank you. Well, we're coming towards the last few minutes of the show. But as ever, of course, it is time for Barrage the Farage, where you send in your questions and I'll do my best to answer them. And Wilfred's staying with me. I might bring him in because um, I haven't seen these before. Neil on Twitter asks me, Prince William likes ACDC's Thunderstruck. What's your favourite song to headbang to? <laughs> Are you a headbanger, Wilfred? No, but I was um, watching a documentary the other night with, um, was it Phil Lynham, the guy from Thin Lizzy? Yep. I thought I could have banged away to his tune. <laughs> uh, I thought, how on earth didn't I know his music when I was, uh, was a young kid? I was yeah, really I was impressed with him. Big, thin Lizzie endorsement. <laughs> Headbanging, got to tell you, not for me. Michael asks, do you think it would be a good idea for the Reform and Reclaim parties to join forces and become one? The Conservative Party has moved so far to the centre, perhaps even so far to the left, uh, that there is now room, once again, on the centre-right. UKIP filled that gap very effectively. Thank goodness it did. It helped get us a referendum, which got us Brexit. Wilfred, you were a Brexiteer. Definitely. 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 The best I thing ever, we ever did. <laughs> Full-on Brexiteer. Best, best thing we ever did. I think that for the centre-right to be split between two relatively new parties uh, is something that needs to be addressed. I think somehow someone's got to put a, put a bit of salt on Boris Johnson's tail. I really, really do. Dave on Twitter asks, 
when are you inviting Dominic Cummings on a talking pipe? Do you know what? I've never got on with Dominic Cummings at all. I, I found him difficult in the extreme. But the point about talking pints is we sometimes get delightful guests, such as Wilfred, and we often get other guests that are quite punchy and difficult. But we get people with all ranges of opinions across the political spectrum. And if Dominic Cummings wants to come on talking pints, and as I say, Jacob Rees-Mogg did endorse this segment of the programme from the dispatch box yesterday. Dominic, you want to come on talking pints? Come on. If you want to have a punch up, that's fine. You're welcome. Right, I've got time for one or two more quick ones. One viewer on Twitter asks, would you ever admit you were wrong about anything? Yes, I've often admitted I've been wrong about many, many things. My life has been strewn with ridiculous, catastrophic errors. The thing is, do we learn from our mistakes, Wilfred? I tell you what, this is one of my favourite sayings. You only know if you're living by the mistakes you make. You know, every day you've got to be able to say, I made a mistake. Now, the key thing is that you've got to learn from that. But if you think life is about not making mistakes, yeah. you're slumming. Away with the birds. Absolutely. And we're going to end on a very serious note, but a very important note. 80 years ago today, the Japanese Imperial forces attacked Pearl Harbor. There were 300,000 Americans in and around the Pearl Harbor Basin at the time. 2,400 of them were killed in those air raids. Today, 80 years on, there are only 38 of those 300,000 left. The World War II generation, you know, they really are passing away. Um, and I thought it's worth remembering Pearl Harbor and looking at some of this footage because it was because of Pearl Harbor, of course, that the United States finally entered the war. And if the United States had not entered the war, there would have been no D-Day, there would have been no Normandy, there would have been no defeat of Nazi Germany. And we wouldn't enjoy our rights of democracy and free speech that we do today, which is why we've got to hang on to those rights of free speech and fight against anybody from the cancel culture left.